makes it a two-point game. There's the mismatch right here. Now it's Luka. Deep three on Welcome back to 77 Minutes in Heaven, the Dallas Mavericks podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. Brian Damaris here with Mark Followell, and uh, we continue to have news uh, about the restart, and we're going to delve into it from a health perspective today. We are. Someone uh, way more qualified and infinitely smarter than we are, and uh, we've talked to him before. Matter of fact, I believe that you arranged for him and when you've been producing on the ticket for a guest for some yeah, of the guys on the ticket. We've talked to him yeah. off air as well. And uh, Dr. Edward Dominguez, uh, the infectious disease specialist at Methodist Hospital, uh, joined us this week. And what I really like about him is he puts complex topics in an easy to understand way for us. Yes, he does. And uh, he, to me, like during the entire thing, because I remember when you guys had him on the ticket, Brian, he's done such a good job uh, to me of. His demeanor is very even keel. So he's very serious about the threat, but he never portrays things in a way that's designed to uh, induce panic and scare people. He's very serious and very matter of fact about the possibilities, but he's also reasonable uh, just about everything around the virus. I love that he he's just got the right kind of demeanor to strike the right chord about this entire situation. And, uh, you know, he, he is on the front lines battling this every day at Methodist. And, and you know, he's got some interesting things to say about, you know, uh, coaches and, and should they be on the sidelines, uh, how safe the environment is. Um, you know, he talked to a doctor from Orlando and the spikes that are going on there. So I think you'll enjoy the discussion and you and I'll come back and talk about uh, all the latest developments that have been breaking even today, as well as uh, what this week looks like in terms of timelines. Sounds good. Let's get to it. So, Mark Falwell, we are now joined by Dr. Edward Dominguez of uh, Methodist in Dallas. He's the infectious disease specialist, and he's brought to us courtesy of the Dallas County Medical Association. Dr. Dominguez, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Uh, so the NBA came out with their testing protocols and a very long document they sent out to all the teams and players. Um, and briefly, starting on the 23rd of June, they're going to do an antibody test and then every other day, uh, testing and that testing is going to be a shallow nasal swab, shallow nasal and oral swabs, a PCR test done by, done by Quest, and then starting in early July, uh, when they check into Orlando for this bubble environment, they're going to be isolated in their hotel rooms for up to 48 hours uh, until they get two negative tests from that shallow or oral testing. So my question to you is. Uh, if you were a player going into that environment, would you feel comfortable and safe considering those protocols are being taken? I would. Uh, we have been using protocols in the hospital setting that aren't even quite that aggressive. Um, we haven't done every other day testing except in a select group of people who proved to be COVID positive, and we were trying to document uh, how rapidly they were clearing the COVID with whatever treatment we had them on at the time. But what I feel comfortable is somebody who goes into a situation where I'm not currently infected and they're checking me that frequently. I certainly would. I think that's a, it's an aggressive, some might say an overly aggressive approach, but I, I think given the, the stakes uh, in this situation, I, I think it's very appropriate. I would feel very comfortable. You know, one of the things that's happened, Doctor, as sports leagues have started around the world, and of course it's something that we're going to be watching very closely as the NBA starts. Uh, for example, a as you may be aware of, as they have restarted soccer in Europe, for example, uh, they're conducting frequent rounds of testing, and occasionally, uh, although the numbers are not very high at all, uh, they're testing in some cases fifteen to 100 to 2,000 people and finding only two positives, four positives, five or six numbers along those lines. And those players or staff members of teams uh, are asymptomatic and then typically isolated. So uh, when you hear that that sort of protocol is being put, a pl put in place in European soccer leagues, and that's sort of the same approach that we'll have here from the NBA, upon hearing that 
that, that those are the plans. How do you assess uh, the, their their methodology for dealing with the small number of positives that they do expect that they're going to encounter here, but don't want to have to shut everything down again whenever they encounter those? I think that's very reasonable. That The best analogy I can draw to that is, at least with the Methodist system, what we call pre-procedural testing. So this is uh, for patients that are coming in for elective procedures. We started about a month ago in, in early May. We required pretty much the same type of testing, a, a negative antibody test and a negative uh, PCR test. Um, and these were done within 48 hours of the schedule was being done. In doing over a 1,000 of these tests in the Methodist system, we have found less than 1% positive rate. So it's not very common that people are turning positive, and, and when they do turn positive, then obviously we're not doing the procedure, and they go into the, the, the typical quarantine pathway that most people would, uh, would take. Given that these are very, uh, very healthy athletes, and obviously at the peak of physical performance, uh, it doesn't surprise me that we're going to find an occasional positive patient it doesn't surprise me at all that they're asymptomatic given how the, the, the physical condition that they're in. Uh, and I think that the risk for the remainder of the players once the isolation has started is, is very low. Now, only time will tell, but I, I have been very impressed so far, and I do keep up with the European leagues, very impressed that they have been able to continue play and not have to interrupt despite the occasional positive tests that they've identified. So I think that that model works well uh, since we've been using something akin to that for, for pre-procedural testing. So, Dr. Dominguez, does this, this PCR test, and we've seen video and, and heard people about the deep, deep nasal swabs that are occurring. These, the players are going to be using shallow nasal and oral tests. Are those as good as the, the deeper tests? If you're using a diagnosis uh, gentlemen, no, they're probably not as good, but the, the, what you outlined for me is that they're going to be doing this repeatedly, correct? You said every other day or so? Uh, yes, every other day usually so, is going to be there. So why does that make a difference? That makes a difference because a high normal, if the, if the virus is only located in the uh, very deep in the, in the nasopharynx and the, na and the nose, um, if they become symptomatic or start to develop disease, it's going to easily be detectable in the lower part of the nose. So the shallower test will be, if they're doing serial tests on shallow testing, they'll be able to pick it up if that individual turns positive three or four of those tests later. So I, I think doing it the way they're proposing makes a great deal of sense um, in trying to pick it up. If they were only doing one shallow test, I would have issues with that, but not the, not the scheme that they have proposed. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and apparently they're doing both the nasal and the oral uh, always regularly as well. Does doing both of those help weed out false positives? That's correct. So when we first started doing these tests with the, the test that the, the CDC had initially provided for Dallas County and for, uh, for the hospitals, um, it, it required both. It, it, was, it had to be a nasal pharyngeal, uh, an oral and a nasal swab, and they had to be put in the same, uh, the same collecting system. Uh, and at that point, the detection rate was very high. It seemed to go down a little bit when we were doing just either one or the other. So I think uh, doing what they're proposing, doing a nasal and an oral swab, regardless of how far up the nasal swab is, is much more likely going to lead to a detection than a, a false negative. Dr. Dominguez, let me ask you this. Now, obviously, since the players are going to be in an isolated environment, but away from home, then there are going to be things that, that will have to be in place in terms of how uh, hotel rooms are taken care of, how food is delivered to them, et cetera, et cetera. So, so here are a few things uh, that, that the league is going to put in place from a protocol standpoint. Uh, employees at, the, at Disney will not deliver luggage personally inside a player or staff member's room. Uh, Disney employees will clean and disinfect the practice court set up in between use of different teams. Uh, Disney hotel staff 
will will give the uh, will will utilize as few cast members as possible in terms of transporting equipment, team equipment that has to be moved from place to place. Uh, they will uh, not ever be in a room. Uh, in a hotel room, whenever a cleaning crew is there to clean the the, the player's room when he's gone to play a game or whatever, uh, all of those precautions that are be putting that are being put in place in terms of how to manage the interaction of other individuals besides NBA players and coaching staff. Uh, what is your opinion of of how uh, the support personnel will be inside the bubble and and how they plan to to let them have access to do what they need to do, but limit things as much as possible. I think that's a great idea. I think would be, would be even better. And perhaps they have this plan and, and I haven't looked at the document is that they, they cohort the, the supporting cast, the cast of, uh, of uh, Disney employees and, and others who will be supporting the players and the teams while they're there. What do I mean by that? I mean that like we do in a hospital setting, we identify a group of physicians, nurses, and other people, and those are the only people that are allowed to care for these patients or enter the rooms or do whatever the, the, the job requires. Um, and, and those people have to live by a certain code, if you will. So even when they're not at work, they have to agree not to so that not to go out to restaurants to uh, what other places outside in the community may increase their risk of getting infected, and for that they wind up getting a higher compensation. They're getting hazard pay and and things of that nature. If if Disney is proposing something like that, where they'll have their normal cast of support people, but this this cohort of uh, of individuals that are only assigned to the NBA teams, and, and that would be preferable in my mind than rotating people in and out of this um, because that way you can, uh, you can, I mean, you can't control what they do outside, the, outside of work, but you can certainly hold them accountable um, in, in order to, to have the privilege to work with the NBA team. So if, if that's part of their plan, then I think it's a good plan. If it's not part of their plan, then I hope they eventually come to something like that. Uh, and that would be an extra layer of protection potentially for, for the players and for their staff. One one of the things that's come up is that you know some of the coaches are in their upper sixties. There's even one that's in uh, his early seventies. Um, would you have any concern for people of that age uh, in this environment uh, being on the sidelines, obviously without a mask, coaching players in a in an environment where everybody's kind of you know breathing on each other and there's full contact? Is it, should there be any concern for elderly coaches? That's a great question, and so. What we're beginning to find out is that, that, that while age is important, it is probably not the most important. It's age and comorbidities. And by that, things like high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, underlying lung disease, uh, other immune suppressing conditions, that those in conjunction with age are what seem to make age a little bit more problematic. And as you would imagine, when you get to be 60 years old or older, and I'm 60, um, those types of conditions are a little bit more likely in people of age. So I, I, would, I would say that it's not just age. We have a 100-year-old patient in the hospital right now who actually is doing very well with COVID because she didn't really have very many other things associated that you might think of as age-related diseases. So I, I, I think that I'd feel comfortable with those individuals. My guess is that the vast majority of those older uh, uh, individuals associated with teams and with the NBA are probably in pretty good physical condition as well. Um, if they have comorbid conditions, they're probably very well controlled. So I wouldn't have that much concern uh, about those, uh, those members of the NBA staff and teams that are, that are over the age of 60 or 65. One of the things that's going to happen, and, and I'm sure you can understand why the NBA has put this in place, Doctor, is they don't want uh, anybody to be put into a situation where you're going to Orlando and you're sitting in just this complete isolation environment of in your hotel room 24-7 whenever you're not playing basketball games. So, uh, for example, they, they will allow pool use. 
They will allow use of trails at these hotels for running and riding bicycles. Uh, there will be personal services like barbers, manicures, pedicures, hair braiders that are available by appointment for staff. Uh, there's going to be arcade gaming, movie screenings, ping pong tables, card tables, team sponsored outings to restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. So there's going to be things along those lines. Do you feel like that the risk reward aspect of that all lines up in an appropriate way by that i mean you you've there there has to be i guess some expectation that you've got to allow people to live something resembling a normal life within these confines do you feel like that they are putting uh the, the appropriate risk reward categories in the right place as they put together uh these amenities that that will be allowed around whenever games and practices are occurring I do. I, I think they would have to, with each endeavor, particularly off, off-site, off outside of the bubble that they're proposing, every endeavor that would take them into the community, members of the NBA and, and others within the community, uh, that needs to be controlled to the best uh, of their ability. So the transportation to and from those areas and then the people that are serving or or assisting in whatever venue they happen to go to off-site, that particular business needs to be clearly uh, held accountable for their employees and for providing a safe environment for the players and the staff. I think think that's reasonable. Now, having said that, um, I was on a call last evening with a physician from Orlando on a conference call regarding vaccines, uh, including COVID vaccines, And my colleague in Orlando was noting that just as we've noticed in Dallas over the last few days, there have been an increased number of cases in the Orlando community. So I think that the NBA has to be willing to adjust whatever plans are on paper now, just like everything else related to COVID, gentlemen, which has required adjustment sometimes on a weekly or even more frequent basis, they have to be willing to adjust what those risk, what that risk-benefit ratio may be based on what they're seeing in the community. It may be that uh, they'll have to shelter within the bubble for a short time if there, in fact, is going to be a, a surge in Orlando, as this one individual was concerned about. It's too premature to say that that's happening either there or here now. But there's no doubt that the numbers suggest that cases are increasing in certain states, and Texas and Florida are two of the states where we're seeing cases go up. So as long as flexibility remains in their game plan, uh, then I'm fine with, with that. I think they've. it sounds as if they've got a very a deliberative and very thoughtful approach to this to try to maintain the safety of, uh, of our players, of our teams, and, and everybody who supports them. You know, just as a, as a follow-up to that, we've asked you all of these questions, and it is an incredibly extensive protocol. Uh, I believe reports have been that it's 113 pages or something along those lines, the memo that was that was ultimately put together. But but we've asked you all the questions about the, uh, the viability of the protocols, but just big picture, I mean, as a physician who's been on the front lines, your specialty is infectious disease. You've been watching this closely since February or before. We've talked to you about it. You know about surge and case. Uh, you know, how, how do you feel just big picture? I mean, are, are, are you comfortable with sports coming back, the NBA coming back, Major League Soccer in Orlando, the NHL? We're seeing the UIL allow high school participation in, in off-season things right now, and they're running into some stumbling blocks, uh, positive cases, positive cases at college football sites. When, when you think of the, of the path that we're on right now and where we are in this fight, how do you feel, generally speaking, about the idea of – uh, as the return of sports, for, for you know, to put it simply? That's a great question. I, I think I am comfortable, gentlemen, with the return of elite sports because the, the elite athletes are at a different level than, than high school athletes and, and even to some degree college and amateur athletes who are com- they're integrating with the community consistently. That's not to say that the elite athletes are not. But they have the resources through their professional associations to be able to protect them, just like the NBA is doing and certainly like, like other professional leagues, NASCAR, et cetera, have done for their athletes. They, they have the resources to be able to protect um, the participants, the athletes, as well as everybody who supports them in that setting. Uh, plus, it's just really, while an elite, an elite athlete 
positive tests for COVID, they, they are doing very well with this disease. The people who don't do well are the people who think or act like they're elite athletes, and they're not, um, and the spectators. So I feel very strongly that bringing back the elite athletes and allowing them to apply their craft and do what they do uh, and provide some semblance of normalcy to this very crazy life that we've had the last three months is very reasonable to me. I would draw the line, though, I am not comfortable having high school students and one who participates in UIL, a son who participates in high school football. I'm not at all comfortable about that level of participation. I think that's premature because I still think of those those athletes and the people who support those kinds of programs as being part of the general community. And as cases are going up, I worry about the, uh, the, the younger uh, athletes that are not quite there yet. And certainly about the coaches that are not, you know, they're, they're not all in the same condition that professional coaches are. They don't have the same access to the health care and the professional physicians and medical care that, that those athletes get. So um, I draw the line from elite athletes to below. They, they, they probably, I'm not comfortable with that level of participation just yet. But uh, for our NBA players, Major League Baseball, everybody else who's in that elite category, uh, I'm comfortable with that. I do think that a, a lot of uh, deliberation is being done to protect them and, and uh, protect their, their staff and their the teammates. Uh, and we saw the CDC, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, come out with some comments about uh, transfer on surfaces. And obviously, you know, uh, there's a common ball used in the NBA uh, often. Uh, is there less concern now about transfer via surfaces such as a basketball or even just touching things in a hotel setting or or anything like that yes sir i think there is the the transfer is pretty straightforward when you have a known covid individual who is sick with fever or any of the other symptoms that define covid but clearly somebody who's symptomatic their viral shedding is going to be much greater when we're talking about potentially asymptomatic or you know people who are, are completely healthy, um, the transfer through these inanimate uh, surfaces, whether it's uh, a ball, a bat, whatever the case may be, I think those are going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot less efficient. It's inefficient even in even in the hospital settings, but it can happen there. But in a setting like we're talking about in professional sports, I think it's going to be a lot less likely to happen now when you bring spectators into this and you're talking about seats and public bathrooms and concession stands and and all the other things that go on with bringing spectators in that's a whole different a whole different discussion and that's why i think spectatorless participation right now is the appropriate way to roll out these this is probably true for even the lower level of sports uil and college uh, athletics as well Doctor, when you look at, and this is another thing that that is part of the NBA protocol at times when they go into various venues in Orlando, we see this uh, going in, I, I assume, to Methodist Hospital and a lot of other places. How do you evaluate as a doctor the, the benefit in terms of weeding out potential risk factors when you do temperature checks and uh, oxygen satur- blood oxygen saturation checks of people when they come into a facility? What's the benefit for that in the NBA bubble? And, and what's the benefit that you're seeing for that in, in the greater public settings? I, I think that the use of, um, of screening questions, though we have to rely on on the integrity of the person answering, you know, the honesty that they're going to give us the, you know, truthful answers. I think that's very helpful. It at least makes people think, even if they're not going to give us the accurate information. But the objective measurement of a temperature is is very useful because that's, you know, you can't fake that. Um, however, it's uh, what kind of device you use to measure the temperature. And, and what I've heard, though I haven't seen any uh, validation of this, is that uh, the elite athletics, uh, are, are going to use some type of more thermal imaging as opposed to uh, some type of swab or band or something else that many of us are using in hospital settings. They'll use some other type of thermal thing where you have to walk through, almost like uh, walking through a TSA device at the airport, which will pick up your body temperature. I've been to other countries in the past, particularly during SARS 
20 years ago when I was going to China for, for medical meetings where I had to go through those kinds of infrared scanners. And if anybody turned positive, as a couple of people ahead of me did, they were pulled out of line and they were quarantined. They weren't allowed out of the airport. So I think if, if we use something a little bit more advanced, and certainly these elite athletic organizations have the resources to, to afford those things, then that would be even better than the, just the routine temperature taking that we're doing in most hospitals right now. But even that um, it, it's been helpful, and we haven't had any, as far as I'm aware of, both at Baylor University Med Center, where I do have privileges, as well as at Methodist, we haven't had any visitor-linked visitor or associated uh, infection. So I think that the screening so far seems to be effective, even on that smaller scale that we, uh, that we use here. Uh, and some players are expressing concern, you know, about returning to play because of these health issues. And we've talked about the details of getting COVID. Uh, one of the things that's in the in the document the NBA sent out is that if somebody does test positive after their quarantine period, they'll go through a cardiac screening. And I guess some of the players are concerned that if they're put in a situation where they're kind of being asked to play and then they get COVID, could their career or even life be threatened? What's the purpose of the cardiac screening uh, and, and how, you know, what is the prevalence that their career or life could be, could be threatened by getting it? Yes. The, the, the purpose of the cardiac screening is that there has been an association between uh, cardiac events and particularly increased blood clotting, what they call thrombosis. Um, so increased tendency to, for the blood to clot uh, not not necessarily in otherwise healthy people, but in people who have risk factors, particularly hypertension or a history of strokes uh, or a history of prior uh, heart attacks. In these particular individuals, there have been uh, identified events that we think COVID may have triggered. So I think what their goal here is is to is to merely screen these individuals who already are performing at the highest level and probably have uh, you know a high degree of cardiac fitness i i'd be i'd be very surprised if they were to find any positive signals in screening the players who turn positive to be quite honest with you but i do think it's an extra layer of protection now if they find one in a player uh if they find something related to covid uh that that, that is related to the heart that where the heart has been affected then that player for his or her own safety I think should should probably uh, take a break from uh, from playing because that would suggest that they have an increased risk for some cardiac event, including sudden cardiac deaths. So if I were a player, I would want to know that information. The last thing I want to do is find out on a basketball court like we've we've seen historically with college athletes who who have an unmasked cardiac event while they're playing in a game. Doctor, uh, you know, we've all learned, we've all watched a lot, we've all absorbed a lot of information and learned a lot about this disease over the course of the last several months. Uh, as, as we sit here and talk to you uh, in the mid to latter parts of the month of June, and since this all got started in late 2019, and then obviously here more so in the States in early 2020, um, you know, we've received news recently. There's there's been uh, some success in a trial in England about a steroid called dexamethasone for treatment. Um, remdesivir was touted recently by Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, has had its advocates and it's also had its detractors uh, as this is all unfolded. I've heard that in hospitals, common sense medicine, like putting patients on their stomach instead of on their backs, is allowing for increased lung capacity and treatment. There have been positive treatment things uh, that have been related to that. So I know that you guys are working so hard and leaving no stone unturned. Uh, hearing some of the things that I just brought in terms of treatment options how do you feel as uh you know as, as an elite medical professional a professional that is about the advancements we are making D do you feel good about it are the are the rising cases are you still like gravely concerned or do we have more tools in the toolbox that we're going to ultimately win this battle and, and, and that big picture term uh given all the things that i mentioned how are you feeling uh in, in our fight against covid in general right now I'm feeling I'm feeling positive. I'm feeling positive for a number of reasons. First, um, for all the reasons you've mentioned, the the dexamethasone study, which we've actually been using for a month and a half, but we didn't have the 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 power in in many of our hospitals like the the United Kingdom's Recover study. 
that uh, that has shown uh, an effect, at least for those who have moderate to severe disease. We have quite a few, over a couple of hundred courses of remdesivir that we have had delivered to us from Gilead um, before they've gone uh, b- before they've gone commercial and, and, and they're starting to sell this. So we have plenty of remdesivir for the time being. Um, we're doing, we started a new clinical trial today for another drug uh, to try to keep patients off the ventilator. We've got two other clinical trials that we're looking at. I have been absolutely astounded with the, at the rapidity with which um, the all parts of the medical field, nursing, research, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, um, primary care practitioners, everybody has responded to this in a, in a way that I never thought possible. Um, and, and I've been very impressed that we have been able to win more battles, gentlemen, than we were, than we're losing now, which was not the case in the first two or three weeks where if you got on a ventilator, you, you only had about a 5% chance of surviving off the ventilator. That's not true anymore. We now understand much more about this disease. We have people all across the world working on it in all kinds of laboratories, including labs that had no interest or knowledge of coronavirus before this. So I think we've come to we're in a far better place. And uh, furthermore, we know that as rank-and-file citizens, even though we hated doing the shelter in home, we know that it worked, that if we have to go back to that, and I hope we don't have to, but if we have to go back to that, we know that that was able to flatten the curve. Now, for a lot of parts of the country, the curve is still flat. It's not declining. But for some places, it is declining. And so I think that we, we have a sense both as a society and as a medical community and maybe even to some degree in economics and sports and other places, we know the things that we have to do. We may not like them. We may not enjoy them. Uh, they may hurt a little bit, but we know what we have to do, and we can get back to a place that uh, if we see a surge, we can get back to a place where we're not surging anymore. So I think with all that knowledge, I feel a lot more comfortable and a lot more optimistic uh, that we can ride this out until we have better therapy than remdesivir, and we have vaccines, which are still a ways off. But until such time, I feel that we, we have a lot of knowledge and we're putting, you know, we're adding more to that on a daily basis that allows us to deal with this as a society without completely disrupting our lives as we all did across the world for, for several weeks. Well, Dr. Edward Dominguez, we want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for your time and, and all the efforts you've been putting in over these last few months and years. Um, Dr. Edward Dominguez, the infectious disease specialist at uh, Methodist Dallas, courtesy of the Dallas County Medical Association. Thanks a lot. My privilege. Thank you, gentlemen. Falwell, uh, we just had a great discussion with Dr. Dominguez from Methodist, and uh, it's really timely because with the health plan coming out last week and added concerns over the weekend about what's going on in Orlando, um, it's great to get a uh, a, an educated perspective on what's going on. Um, I, I would like to get into some of my own concerns here in a moment, but maybe just uh, you know a recap of things that came out of the interview from your perspective uh, that Dr. Dominguez had to say. Yeah, initially when I asked him about you know, would he feel safe as an NBA player going in that environment? Uh, the quote that really stuck out with me is that the NBA is being overly aggressive. I right. mean, they're really taking all the steps that they can. I mean, bottom line is, if the NBA is going to play, this is the way to do it. Yes. So if if there's just such concern at whatever level, uh, then there's just not going to be a completion of the season. There's not going to be NBA basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they want to do it, this really is the only way to do it. I don't think that people could find fault with this plan. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. No, it, it, it makes perfect sense. And I read, uh, I read a similar article today with, uh, you know, other – medical professionals who all are expressing concern about rising cases in Florida as it relates to the NBA and, for that matter, Major League Soccer restarting their season with that MLS's back tournament that's going to start in Orlando here in a couple of weeks as well, uh, a little over a couple of weeks. But, but you know, all of the medical professionals have, have basically said, look, the NBA's done everything that they can do, everything that you could reasonably expect 
they have done it. So if it doesn't work out, it's going to be because of, you know, just just way too much community spread of the virus causing too many problems. The NBA has come up with the best plan possible under the circumstances. Yeah. And and one of the, the issues in that, and I think one of the, the areas of concern that's bubbling up is because of the, the spiking that's occurring in Florida and specifically in Orange County, which is where the, the Disneyland complex is. Um, you know, they had 243 cases yesterday, 345 cases Saturday, uh, which are third and second most in the state, uh, respectively. Uh, Miami-Dade is in the South is having, you know, kind of a really, really bad outbreak. But the concern is the workers, because the workers are not being tested. They're being temperature checked. Mm-hmm. Now, from what I understand, there's kind of a tiered level of access for those workers. In other words, if you're working outside and trimming the bushes or doing things like that, you're not going to be aggressively screened as much as the people that are going to be cleaning the rooms. Right. Say, right. Or the people that are setting up ballrooms will be screened less than again, the maids and people Mm -hmm. like that or food prep. So depending on your level of access is how aggressively, um, you're screened. But even the maids, you know, nobody's going to be in the room. They're going to do that once a week. Players won't be in the room. Staff are not going to be near, players at any time right and if this cohorting is done which is what dr dominguez suggested and i have not heard if that's the case but cohorting basically is anybody who's going to be involved in the bubble that is a disney cast member is going to be told and paid extra told listen you're not to basically go out in public right when you're on your own personal time yes yes you're gonna you're gonna work this and the responsibility that we're going to place on you for working this is that you know you're going to get paid extra, but you're also going to have to conduct your personal life in you know rel- in, in relative isolation. You know, right. you're you're basically going to have to live in lockdown uh, as as we obviously experienced a few months ago. Again, we don't know. That's a really good idea. That's really intriguing. And applause to you, by the way, that you have adopted the Disney lingo of cast members. That's right. Which is what, which is what they refer to as their employees is Disney cast members. Very impressive. That's not just the people that wear the goofy yeah. outfits. <laughs> it's it's everybody, and that is that that is true. That's what they say. You know, to me, Brian, here's the deal when it comes to you. Know, you just brought up rising case numbers in Orlando, and I think as this entire uh, thing has unfolded from, and, and I'm talking about from a grand scale, society wise, not just the impact on sports, of course, but as this this whole thing has unfolded, we've all you know, witnessed and heard different news reports. And I think, you know, we've all, I think most of us have arrived at the place. Not everybody is here, but I think we all understand this, that, you know, just talking about case numbers isn't, doesn't give you the whole picture. If we're talking about from a societal health transmission, public health concern standpoint, uh, you know, how many people are being tested, what the hospitalization rates are, the ICU admissions, all of those things tell you the real story as it relates to whenever you're looking at this from a big picture public health concern. Correct? Right. Yes. But now the one thing I will say, though, about rising case numbers as it relates to Orlando and the NBA bubble is this, is that this does matter to me because rising case numbers mean it's out there more in the community. And then that means that just the more people that have it, the more possibility is that a person carrying could penetrate the bubble unknowingly, of course. Uh, you know, just an asymptomatic person somehow gets in there and it causes spread and eventually it spread to players. And, you know, we spent a lot of this last several months, understandably so, talking about societal issues that are much bigger than winning and losing basketball games. But the fact that we're restarting the season here, the odd, the, the goal of this is going to be to win, to, to win basketball games. And so the fact that, that, People testing positive and having to self-isolate, and that could be very impactful in terms of getting into the postseason results once you get into the postseason. I mean, that's kind of the concern that I have as it relates to rising case numbers and what that could mean for the NBA bubble. Yeah, and I think one of the key things I took away from Dr. Dominguez's conversation is that um, a lot of times we just say, you know, age is a risk factor, but really what he was trying to say is that it's, it's the health of the person. Yeah. You could be, a, you know, as he mentioned, you could be a healthy 100 year old mm-hmm. and have less risk yeah. than a obese 20 year old. Yeah. That was a really interesting story. And so, yeah. uh, these athletes are going to be 
less likely to have long-term complications from getting right. COVID. Yeah. But the but short it does term have yeah. competitive implications. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And we are look, I mean, again, uh, you know, certainly understand that there's a lot bigger things going on in the world right now uh, as it relates to coronavirus and as it relates to social justice issues that we've talked about in the last couple of podcasts at length. However, uh, you know, competitive wins and losses, that's that's all part of the restart of the NBA. We are going to have to, you know, get to that place and talk about that and uh, understand that that's all part of what's going on here. And so this could, you know, have significant competitive impact if, uh, you know, if, if a number, a high number of players uh, and certain key players obviously were to test positive. Let's, let's just hope that's not the case. Yes, because I believe it is currently stands. If you do test positive, you have to have two tests that are negative after your symptoms are gone and then you still have a 10 day quarantine period. Yeah. So yeah. you're going to be, you know, you're going to basically miss a playoff series. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it, it makes me wonder, you know, would there, are there going to be, you know, even further uh, regulations that could be placed in terms of uh, for the players inside the bubble? Now, the only one that comes to mind, of course, is the regulation that we're all adopting to again, which is the wearing of masks. You know, that being passed here in Dallas County, uh, you know, a few days ago and that put into place. And well, currently it, players, players have to wear masks except when playing. They do. OK. All right. I, OK. I, there's been so or, many or in there. OK. Food or drink is an exemption. Right. In their room, obviously, they don't have to. Right. And, and practice or games, but going to and fro and all of that. They have to wear masks. Okay, good. That's good to hear. That's you they know, all, that's you know, staff members. Everybody's the same. Good. That's because that's uh, that's a, a, certainly a significant part of the mitigation aspect of this. So there's there's been so many protocols, and you know, obviously the 113 page document never got emailed to me. Uh, they were on the inside. <laughs> not not that much on the inside. I heard I you called the- <laughs> Adam Silver and said, "Do you know who I am?" Get that to me, stat. Well, that's really no. I think that's great news that that's that that, that is part of it. And thank you for the uh, reminder for me and for for our listeners and just the the clarification on that part of it. Yes, and 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 all staff members will be wearing the ring, right? Which looks like a wedding ring, basically, but mm-hmm. is is what uh, has temperature on there and mm-hmm. sleep patterns and distance control and all of that. Yep. So uh, players do not have to wear that, but it is optional. What I did find interesting, I found out that the uh, testing is not an immediate response. It's 24 hours uh, results so that it's the frequency kind of builds into that where you're going to kind of have rolling tests and rolling results. So it's possible that someone could test positive and still play for 24 hours or so mm. until they get results in. So these aren't 15 minute results. Right, right. Yeah, you know, but uh, but the thing about it is, is from what I've heard, um, and and this is from a person in the medical profession, and this was a few weeks back, that uh, he wasn't overly impressed with the the devices that test uh, they give you fifteen minute test right. results. Now maybe they've improved since the last time I spoke to this person, but but this person that I spoke with was not uh, was not uh, giving me really positive feedback on the accuracy of those. Right. Uh, those and that's tests. why, uh, and as we noted with the doctor, you know, they're doing these shallow nasal swabs and oral swabs combined mm-hmm. with every test. Now they're going to do an antibody test on Tuesday right. and these combo combo tests, uh, as the first test, everybody's going to get mm-hmm. in the practice facility. But in Orlando, they're going to be doing shallow and nasal, uh, every other day. Not as effective as the deep nasal swab that you kind of went through yeah. and, and, and described last week. Yep. But because of the frequency, Dr. Dominguez said, then you'll be able to catch it soon enough to right. not be a problem. Mm-hmm. And the false positives and, frankly, false negatives will diminish because of the frequency of the tests. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, uh, again, I think uh, the NBA has put together – under the circumstances and given that no plan, of course, that you can implement will, uh, you know, be able to be 100% guaranteed foolproof at this point. Uh, they, they put together, it looks to me like, and, and more importantly, from somebody who's a lot more educated about it than you and I are, Dr. Dominguez, I think, uh, you know, I walked away from it feeling like he views it as the NBA's done the best that they can do. And now it's just, uh, you know, let's, let's see what the implementation looks like. So... 
we're, this is an interesting week. Uh, we're, we're, we're recording this on Monday, but on the 23rd, Tuesday, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, testing will take place in practice facilities across the league. Correct. Everybody's back. Luca and KP got back uh, this weekend. They're yep. back. Um, and everybody will be tested. Now, again, because of this 24 hours, you know, A, we're not going to hear positive cases Tuesday, I don't think, because of that. Correct. Also, I don't think we're going to hear names because obviously you're going to know names in Orlando because those players won't be playing. Right. If you suddenly see somebody mm-hmm. not there, you're going to, by deduction, know who it is. Uh, but I think because, as we've heard with the Lakers and the Nets and some other teams, um, you may hear numbers, but mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to hear names at this point. I mean, that's what's happening, Brian, with the NHL. Uh, The NHL announced late last week, I think it was uh, maybe Friday afternoon, that as they're getting ready for their restart of the season, uh, they haven't tested everybody in the league yet, but they announced that so far they had tested in excess of 200 players, 11 players had tested positive, and the NHL and the NHLPA were not going to be releasing the names of the, the names of the players, obviously, or even the teams that they were affiliated with. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, other people can't leak the news. Uh, we saw that in the case of the NFL, by the way, of course, with uh, Ezekiel Elliott, for example, with right. the Cowboys last week. You know, there are still leaks that could possibly occur. But, uh, you know, look, it never leaked who the Lakers people right. were that tested positive. Uh, it never came out who the Nets were other than Kevin Durant because he volunteered that information himself. So. And not only players, but everybody in basketball operations will be tested mm-hmm. and, and some family members will be tested. Wow. So uh, it's extensive testing mm-hmm. to kind of get a full picture of where things are right now. And then that testing you know, will continue every other day. Uh, until they go to my to Orlando and then have their where their quarantine period where they have to stay in their hotel room until they pass two tests. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that uh, happens as we talk here on Monday is not only as Brian said on Tuesday the twenty third of June is the testing procedures going to start around the league. But then also now a window of roster reinforcement and roster changes opens as well. And there is news on that front for the Mavs because it was reported a little while ago by uh, 77 Minutes in Heaven podcast guest recently, uh, Mark Stein of the New York Times, breaking the news that for the Mavs, Courtney Lee is out and will not be playing in Orlando because of a calf injury that he sustained during the layoff that requires surgery. Uh, First of all, uh, that's really disappointing from two fronts. Number one, uh, couldn't find a better guy, a uh, super nice person who's a very, very respected teammate and viewed you know, as someone with a significant voice in terms of leadership and uh, respect and experience because of what he's been through in his career. So he's thought of very highly in the locker room. And the other thing, dude, is he was helping them. I mean, it seems so long ago. <laughs> it's like I feel like I've kind of forgotten what – things were happening, what, how things were like there after the All-Star break before the season stopped on March the 11th. But remember, Brian, that with Powell and Brunson out, the Mavs were down a couple of key players. And, you know, sometimes uh, Porzingis was missing games. Uh, so you were having to go farther down into your rotation. And Lee ended up starting quite a few games for the Mavs and ended up contributing uh, to games in which they won between the All-Star break and, uh, when Brunson got hurt and whatever it was, the second game after the All-Star break and that time window and when they shut down the season on March the 11th, Courtney Lee was helping them, man. So the question is, what do you do roster-wise? Um, because it's an injury, they can't just replace him right? Uh, like you can with somebody who opts out for personal reasons or whatever other reason or is cleared or is is uh, found to be COVID risk. Right. Therefore, they would have to waive him uh, to sign someone. Now, you say, well, why not waive him? He's the last year of his deal. Uh, maybe they want to keep his rights. Right. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see. Or maybe they're planning on bringing him to Orlando because they view that his presence there, even as a uh, veteran presence, uh, supportive guy who can talk about the playoff experience, even though he can't play, maybe they would view his, uh, you know, his being there still of value. I don't know. I don't know how they look at that, but that 
But, but yeah. it, you know, the reporting in Stein reported uh, Monday that, you know, the Mavericks are going to be in the marketplace to sign somebody. Um, a lot of, you know, external names you hear, you know, you have the DeMarcus Cousins, you have the CJ Miles, the Trey Burks, the J.R. Smiths, the Gerald Greens. Um, and just for clarification for our listeners, so just to, to and, and for me too. So to sign somebody, they one of two things would have to happen. Either they would have to waive Lee to open up a roster spot or somebody in the team would have to choose to not go for personal reasons, reasons. Uh, coronavirus reasons, desiring to stay active and participate in social justice initiatives, whatever the case is. Right. If a person opts out or, or you know, today we've seen examples around the league. Davis Bertans is opting out because he's going to be a free agent in the offseason. Uh, and he's gonna he's in line for a big payday after a really good season with the Wizards, uh, and their chance of making the playoffs is pretty remote. Although I think I don't I don't I don't think uh, you're quite as flippant about it as I was about the fact that he's not playing because it's kind of to you I think it feels like the, the it feels like the college football player not playing in the bowl game, yeah. which I don't have a problem with, but because they're not getting paid, but. Uh, he signed a contract to pay for his team, and and he's worried that he's going to suffer an injury and ruin his payday. Yeah, and I think that's you know, eh, that's not what this is about, right? But he's using it to his advantage here. Uh, you know, would he stop playing for his team in the middle of March? Right. If it yeah, was a regular have. time, so you know, to use this time to just say, well, I, I want to, I don't want to get hurt because we're out of it, and you know. I think that's kind of crappy, but Trevor Ariza is a different situation. He's opting out because he wants, he has a, uh, he's in a custody battle and has a month with his child that he wants to uh, mm-hmm. yep. spend time with. He's also a free agent to be. Um, and he'd so, been starting for Portland uh, since he had been, since Sacramento had traded him to Portland at the right. deadline. I mean, he'd been a starting heavy minute rotation player for the Trailblazers. So that's, uh, you know, one less person. And they're in the mix, Brian. I mean, look, they're in the mix. They're right there with, uh, New Orleans and San Antonio and those teams that have a realistic chance maybe to end up playing Memphis in a play-in for that eight spot in the Western Conference. And so the 24th Wednesday is the deadline for, for players to inform their teams of whether mm-hmm. they're opting out uh, for any reason to go. Um, and then there's a window from the 23rd to the 30th to sign players. Usually you would never sign players <laughs> right before the playoffs, but this yeah. is obviously the unique time because of people coming off of rosters that you can add to it. So the Mavs can uh, decide this week whether they're going to waive Courtney Lee or see if another player is going to inform them and then uh, act accordingly. But one of the names you and I talked about off air was Ryan Brokoff, which right. you know I don't have any inside info. This is just speculation um, that you know he may be somebody because I think you know you you want some wing depth, you right. want kind of low minutes. Um, wing time, mm-hmm. basically the minutes Courtney was playing right uh, out there. And you want somebody because of the fact that you really don't have team practice except for 10 days in July mm-hmm. until you start playing uh, that knows the system mm-hmm. and, and is not starting from scratch. So maybe somebody that's played with you uh, would be better than going onto the street. And I checked his Instagram. He stayed in Dallas. You know, he's been in Dallas the whole time. So, again, we don't have any insight on that. Uh, July 15th is, you know, the deadline for taxes, so he may be busy. (laughs) Yeah, he is the accountant after all. So, (laughs) Ryan from accounting. Um, You know, uh, John Hollinger from The Athletic, you know, you were just kind of mentioning some of the names. Um, C.J. Miles is a Dallas guy, Skyline High School. There have been pastimes in his career when I know that, um, as a matter of fact, remember the summer where the Mavs went after D-Will? One of the first meetings they also had in free agency that summer because I think Miles had played, you know, Miles had obviously played with Williams in both Utah and Brooklyn. I I think that Rick Carlisle and C.J. went to dinner. Now, that's that's seven years ago, uh, but I know that at least in the past, uh, you know, the Mavs and Miles under the right circumstances seem to have mutual interest in each other. It never really materialized and it's a much different world now, but he did play 10 games with the Wizards early in the season. Uh, I thought John Hollinger in his athletic article was incredibly generous and kind in saying that he was not bad for the Wizards in that time. Uh, he shot 32% from the floor and 31% from three. But if you were going to look at somebody who replicated a little bit of Courtney Lee just in terms of a veteran guy, who you know has been around the block and you know has some playoff experience and obviously has a lot of just NBA game experience. 
that would be a name. But but let's keep an eye on Brokoff because just to the the ease of fitting back into the mix, familiarity with the system, liked, respected, et cetera. Yep. So, you know, these listen, these are names on the edges. These are not make or break, you know, players or situations. The the core group that we know outside of Powell and, and Brunson are all here. They're all ready to go. Yep. Um, you know, they've been checked on, they feel good, they're healthy, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's going to be in the gym Tuesday for their testing and, and the eight people at a time workouts that will continue now with head coaches involved. Yep. Yep. I saw that they're going to allow up to something like 10 coaches. I think now I saw that that came out over the weekend that, uh, the number of coaches that can be involved is, is going up as well. The number of players, uh, that's going to be able to go up as well. So, uh, you know, it's 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 obviously, despite the fact that uh, you know there's there's a lot of things outside the lines that we're understandably focused on. Um, you know, it still seems full steam ahead in terms of preparations to you know a, as slow as they're inching along, Brian. Uh, it does seem like you know it's still it's still proceeding towards uh, ultimately getting this thing back up and running on July the thirtieth. Yeah, I think you know people here. And, and we're seeing, you know, over the weekend, this kind of big flare up about Orlando and people today starting to drop out. You're going to hear more names drop out. Yeah. You're going to hear positive cases come out in the next few days. Keep in mind, I don't think that any of that, all that news is expected. And I don't think any of that's going to dampen the desire to continue. I don't think the groundswell of people that are not wanting to play or or testing positive is going to at this point, barring something unforeseen, stopping the momentum to, to start. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I saw, and forgive me for not remembering, it was it was connected to somebody in Major League Soccer that I followed because Atlanta United has had a couple of players that have tested positive. And, uh, you know, it, w- it was connected with, with that news about Major League Soccer, with the news about the NHL and players testing positive. I mean, that is what, you know, Positives are going to be found, and that's part of the ramp-up process is we have to start from a place of knowing that we're starting from with who is going to participate at the beginning, people who are healthy and who are not positive. So all of that's got to be weeded out. You know, it's just like, to be honest with you, like my wife is working in a business right now where they are doing testing for employees, you know, businesses are testing their employees as they come back to work so they can at least start from a baseline of here are the people who are healthy and who can come back to work right now. And so this is kind of the same thing as it relates to professional sports. We have to know who's healthy, who can come back, weed out the people for the time being who can't, manage them, get them healthy, get them back out of the mix when the time is appropriate. And and then, you know, once we start from the baseline of knowing who's healthy and who's available, then we'll do everything within our power to manage it as best we can. And, and that's how it's going to go. And I believe that, well, I do know that the testing that's going to happen Tuesday will include the antibody testing. So we'll actually know who had it. Yeah. And maybe was asymptomatic and didn't know. Right. Because uh, from what I understand, a good number of the Major League Baseball cases that came back positive, uh, they were asymptomatic. They had no idea. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a good thing. If you know somebody's kind of already been through it. Sure. Then you know we don't have to. They'll continue to be tested, but uh, you know it, what? What is the MLS timetable? Because they're playing in the same place. Their timetable, Brian, is. I mean, there's barely going to be. Well, in terms of actual games, there's barely going to be an overlap. But there will be. Uh, but but basically, their tournament is starting on July the eighth. So major league soccer games are going to be starting about the time NBA players are. So arriving. when are they going to Orlando? Uh, that is going to happen here in the next few days. Okay. So yeah, I don't have a specific date for you. I apologize. a similar bubble yeah. setup. Yes. Correct. So that's good for the NBA because we will see, you know, a test case. Yep. Yeah, that's true. In the same place. Mm-hmm. And if there's huge issues because it's in Orlando or what have you, then mm-hmm. we'll start to see. And those are the Disney employees that are going to be. Right. In there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The timetable on that, Brian, is July the 8th will be the restart or the tournament that's being played. It's kind of weird. They're playing a tournament, uh, and some of the games in the tournament are actually going to count as 2020 regular season games, but they're also group stage games for a World Cup style tournament. So they'll have a tournament that has all the teams there from July the 8th 
for a couple of weeks for a group stage, and then some teams will leave because they're eliminated after group stage, and then we'll get to a knockout stage like uh, like you know any typical uh, international soccer tournament does. And then, and then uh, August the 11th, I believe, is the date that that tournament's due to end. Well, I'm just a common man who can't appreciate the genius that soccer is. <laughs> well, I, need, I knew I needed to uh, give you an in-depth explanation for it. Um, but so by the time we join you all next week, um, you know, we may have positive case numbers from Dallas. Yep. From the Mavs testing. We may have roster moves. Correct. Um, either players deciding to opt out or uh, Courtney Lee being waived and another player being signed. We may have two-way action. Um, so there is going to be a lot of developments going on, Mavs-wide and league-wide, in terms of case reporting uh, and players uh, opting to not go to Orlando. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of... Uh player news that impacts winning and losing of games, getting back to something we were talking about earlier. And, you know, the closer we get to this, obviously the closer that or the more that's going to be on our mind is, you know, how all of these, uh, these pieces to the puzzle fit in terms of what it's going to mean for competitive possibilities for not just the Mavericks, but for everybody as the, uh, as the NBA season heads towards it, heads towards its restart. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed our, deep dive on the health stuff uh, this week and uh, really getting a look at kind of what is the, you know, last week we talked to Donovan a lot on the social issues. This week we wanted to tackle the health issues, and those are the two main concerns that players have going into uh, really the official restart of team activities uh, on Tuesday. So uh, we will be back next week, and I'm sure we will have a bunch more news to to share and dive into at that time. Sounds good. All right. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my God. Oh! Shut it down. Let's go home. It's a wrap, Doug. That is a wrap.